Good afternoon, everyone. Often when we think of sin, we think of not doing this or that, not smoking, perhaps not eating pork, not lying, not stealing, and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with that sort of thinking because sin does involve avoiding wrong types of behavior. Today, however, I want to approach sin from a different perspective. Most of us know what not to do, that is, the behavior we're to avoid in order not to sin. If we know the commandments of God, then we know what we're not to do. But just knowing what not to do isn't enough to put sin out of your life and keep it out. Keeping yourself from sin requires establishing and maintaining an in an active and positive way, a right relationship with God. And that, that is, the right kind of a relationship with God is a key, a very important key to conquering sin. And it's one that we all need to come to understand and practice if we're not already. And if we are doing it, we probably need to do a better job of it. This sermon is about your relationship with God and its importance in dealing with sin. To understand how sin develops in our minds and actions, let's go back to the beginning of sin as far as man is concerned. We read about in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2 and verse 8, it says, The Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 15, in verse 15 of Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now notice here that this was not just a suggestion. It says that God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now notice what the first command was. The Hebrew that's translated here, may freely eat, would literally be translated, eating you shall eat. In the, in a, in the Hebrew, it's worded in a similar manner to the end of verse 17, where it says, You shall surely die or as it would be literally translated, dying, you shall die. This is a form of emphasis expressed properly by the translation, you shall surely die. But the words translated, you may freely eat, would be better translated, you shall surely eat. Just as the next verse was translated, you shall surely die. God was telling Adam, he was commanding Adam, 
that of the trees of the garden you shall surely eat. And these trees had spiritual significance, even though they may have very well been literal trees, but they had spiritual significance. And there was a command to eat of the trees of the garden, including and most especially the tree of life, which represents the Spirit of God and hence life, which comes through the Spirit of God. God had set before Adam two ways. And he told Adam to choose the one that was best. He told him what to do and he told him what not to do. Now, compare what God told the Israelites through Moses later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning with verse 15. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15, God said, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. So here's a stark choice. It is two separate ways, a very distinct choice between life and good and death and evil. Essentially, that's exactly the same choice that was set before Adam in the Garden of Eden. And then God said in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 30, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish, you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. This was pretty much precisely the same choice that God had given to Adam and the instruction that he had given. And Adam was in fact drawn away and turned to the worship of Satan and himself rather than God because he had not done what God instructed him to do. And notice that along with these specific commandments, specific things that they were to do or not do, among them was that they were to love the Lord their God. They were to cling to God. In other words, they were to worship God. It wasn't just a kind of a sterile relationship that they were to have with God. They were to enter into a deep relationship with God that involved love and devotion to Him and a relationship on which their lives depended. Adam had not obeyed the command to eat of the tree of life when Satan came to tempt him. 
as we read in Genesis 3 and verse 22, God later said, after Adam had sinned, he said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And I've explained this before. It actually means to designate or take upon himself the, the prerogative of determining what is good or evil. Now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he had not partaken of that tree of life as God had instructed him to. Adam had failed to listen to God. He did not take seriously God's instructions. He had failed to act on the positive part of God's command to eat of the tree of life, which symbolized communion with God, partaking of God's nature through his spirit. Adam's first sin was not actually eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His first sin was a sin of omission. His first sin was that he failed to commune with God. He failed to worship God. And he failed to obey his command to partake of the tree of life, to partake of the Spirit of God. Now, we are nourished spiritually through God, through his Spirit. It's no accident that the trees, which represent food in, in physical terms, were chosen to represent, among other things, the Spirit of God and a relationship with God. Because our spiritual lives are nourished through our relationship with God, through His Spirit. God is the source of life. His Spirit is life. And the key to bearing spiritual fruit is abiding in God. A plant that is dead cannot bear fruit. Only a living plant can bear fruit. And in order for us to bear fruit, we have to have life, and that life is through the Spirit of God. And we abide in God's Spirit. We abide in God's love. God abides in us as His Word abides in us. Jesus said in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Notice that they were clean through having received the word of God. And they had received that by having Jesus Christ teach it to them. In other words, they were involved in a relationship with God. And they were listening to God's words spoken through Jesus Christ. And they had a relationship based on deep affection and love for Christ as they listened to his teachings. They were devoted to him. And he goes on to say, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Again, we see this is an intimate relationship. 
that is involved that allows us to be able to bear fruit. It requires a deep relationship with God. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, now, one of the primary ways in which we abide in Christ and he in us is by his words abiding in us. In other words, by us absorbing his instructions as we study them and think about them, meditate on them, and put them into practice in our lives, then that is the means, at least to an extent, through which God abides in us. And he said, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. But for us to bear fruit, we must have that abiding relationship with Christ, and his words must abide in us. When God's word abides in a person, truly abides in a person where he has inculcated those words into his thinking and he is motivated by those words and guided by them in his thinking and conduct, then he is strong spiritually and he can overcome Satan. He can overcome temptation. If Adam had had respect for God and had abided in God's word, done what God had told him to do, eaten of the tree of life, among other things, then he would have had God's mind working in him. He would have understood the deceitfulness of sin. He would have had the spiritual strength to avoid Satan's temptation. This is what the Kyle and Delich commentary says concerning this. I'm quoting from this commentary, Kyle and Delich, commentary on the Old Testament. Quote, by obedience to the divine will, by obedience to the divine will, he would have attained to a godlike knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't that God wanted to, to deprive Adam of the knowledge of what is good and evil. Quite to the contrary, he, he wanted Adam to understand the truth about what is good and evil. He wanted to share his knowledge of good and evil with Adam. And the only way that that could be done was by Adam partaking of the tree of life, doing what God had told him to do. So this is what the commentary says. By obedience to the divine will, he would have attained to a godlike knowledge of good and evil. He goes on to say he would have detected the evil in the approaching tempter, but instead of yielding to it, he would have resisted it, end quote. There would have been a completely different outcome had Adam done what God had told him to do in the beginning. So if he had feared God and worshipful obedience had partaken of God's nature, symbolized by the eating of the tree of life, he could have and probably would have avoided the sin of eating of the forbidden fruit. 
Adam's problem then began with not having a proper fear of God and reverence for him, and thus not acting on his word. This is summarized also in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, Romans 1 verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is speaking of God, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Yes, Adam and Eve knew God. They were right there in the Garden of Eden with God. But they did not glorify him as God, and they were not thankful, and they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They weren't enlightened by partaking of the tree that God had forbidden to them. They became spiritually blind, or perhaps even more blind than they were before. If we are to avoid sin, we must cultivate a profound reverence for God. We must worship God in humility, in sincerity, and in truth. And we must take heed to His words. We must humble ourselves before God and respect Him and yield to God as the lawgiver. In James 4 and verse 6, James 4 and verse 6, we read, Therefore God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice what comes first is submitting to God. And resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So one of the keys to avoiding sin, one of the most fundamental aspects of this is to submit to God to humble ourselves before God. In Psalm 25, verse 8, it says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. So, God teaches the humble. A person who is proud, a person who thinks he knows it all, is not someone that God can teach effectively until he humbles himself. In Micah 6 and verse 8, Micah 6 and verse 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We are to walk humbly with God. We must never forget that God is the supreme lawgiver and judge. As we read in James 4 and verse 12, there is one lawgiver 
who is able to save and to destroy. And that lawgiver, the one James is referring to, is God. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, Paul wrote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone or each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Every one of us is going to, at some point in the future, when Christ returns, we're going to appear before Christ and be judged for our deeds. In John 12, verse 48, John 12, verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The standard by which Christ is going to judge us is his word, his laws. And that's the basis on which we will be judged. So it's imperative that we take heed to God's word. James also wrote in James 2 and verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty is a reference to the commandments of God, which you can see by reading the context in James 2 where he makes this statement. We're told that we must not add to or take away from the Word of God. It's not our prerogative or our responsibility to make the laws. It is our responsibility to obey the laws that God has given us. And so he tells us we're not to add to His Word or take it away from it. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, God said, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it, you shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Very plain statement. You shall not add to it, nor shall you take away from it. He's the lawgiver. He's the one that tells us what laws we are to observe. But human beings historically have wanted to completely disregard God, God's laws or pick and choose which ones they want to pay attention to or reject entirely. Or they often not only take away from God's laws, but they add their own rules and make up their own code, their own set of conduct, or set of laws that are to guide their conduct. And that's what virtually every religion on the face of the earth has done. The religion of the Pharisees and the scribes at the time of Jesus was no exception. They had made up all kinds of rules and regulations on things that were to be done or not done. They had added all kinds of things to God's laws. It wasn't that they necessarily overtly rejected God's commandments, although they did, through their tradition, make void many of God's specific laws, along with adding other things that are not a part of God's law. And so we read in Mark 7, where Jesus remarks about this, in Mark 7, beginning with verse 5. Mark 7 and verse 5, the Pharisees and scribes asked him, 
Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Notice what the question was here. Why don't, why don't your disciples keep our rules, is what they were saying. Why don't your disciples keep our laws, the ones that we have made up, that people are supposed to be guided by? That was the question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? One of their laws that they had, how you were to uh, wash your hands in a particular way before you eat. Now, not that washing your hands necessarily is a bad idea, but they had a very specific way of doing this, and it was a law that they had imposed upon people as a matter of religion. And he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's what their religion was. A religion encompassing the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God. Now this is, was one of the commandments that they had actually rejected. Along with adding other commandments of their own. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. So through their religious traditions, their own rules, their commandments, they had perverted God's word and they had misrepresented it. And they were actually teaching things that were entirely contrary to some of the most significant of God's laws. They were not living by God's word. They were living by their tradition. As I said, which is virtually what, which is what virtually all religions, all man-made religions do that. Living by God's word is a principle that is illustrated for us, however, over and over again in the Bible. In Matthew 4 and verse 4, Jesus said when he was tempted by Satan, he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word tells us what sin is. It tells us what righteousness is. As we read in 1 John 3 and verse 4, 1 John 3 and verse 4, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law for sin is the transgression of the law that's from the american king james version sin is the transgression of the law 
In Psalm 119, verse 172, Psalm 119, verse 172, we read, My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Righteousness is defined by the commandments, as well as sin being defined by the commandments. And note that the very first commandment given from Mount Sinai was to worship God. Deuteronomy 5, verse 7, you shall have no, none other gods before me, which is explained further in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and verse 5, where God said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, do you love God that way? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves every day. How much do we really love God? Or do we love God at all? Are we going about living our lives and practicing a religion just based on rote or without any real sense of having a relationship with God, out of a sense of duty, without the commitment to God, the love for God that ought to be behind that sense of duty. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, we see this law defined further, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. They were to love God and they were to be faithful and loyal to God. The word translated swear here is the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to seven oneself or to complete, and hence can mean to swear, but it can also mean to worship in the sense of being of, of exercising submission and loyalty completely. Complete submission and loyalty. In the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon, it comments here concerning this word, quote, this is from the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon, it says to swear by God, using this word Shabbat, is sometimes the same as to worship God. So what it is telling us is to worship God and not go after other gods, to love God, to be loyal and faithful to Him and worship Him. Worship Him implies a relationship, a deep abiding relationship with God. Jesus paraphrases this verse in Matthew 4 and verse 10 this verse which we read in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, where he said, as Satan was tempting him, he said to Satan, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is essentially the meaning of Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 and 14, according to Jesus Christ. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. By listening to and obeying God's instruction, Adam could have had God dwelling in him through his spirit. As we read in John 14, beginning with verse 21, John 14, verse 21, 
He that has my commandments and keeps them, it is he that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judah said to him, Not as carry it, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if we obey God's commandments, as according to Jesus Christ, then God will come and dwell in us. He does that through his spirit. In Acts 5, verse 32, Acts 5, verse 32, Peter said, We are witnesses of these things. Also the Holy Spirit, which God has given unto them who are yielding obedience unto him. This is from the Rotherham translation. The sense is that those who yield to God, who are obedient to God, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the open English Bible translation of the same verse, Acts 5, verse 32. We are witness to the truth of this, and so is the Holy Spirit, the gift of God to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit, the gift of God to those who obey him. And in the concordant version, the same verse is translated as follows. We are witnesses to these declarations as well as the Holy Spirit, which God gives to those yielding to him. It means that you yield to God and you obey him. And if you do that, then God grants you the Holy Spirit. That's what he was offering to Adam, God's spirit, and hence eternal life. We see in Psalm 78 how ignoring God's word led Israel more and more deeply into sin. Now, they were never really much committed to obeying God. For brief periods of time, they did obey God, but generally speaking, they were not much interested in actually taking God seriously and obeying his commandments. In verse 5 of Psalm 78, Verse 5, it says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So we're told that God established a relationship with Israel. He gave them a law, but they were not faithful to God. Going on in verse 10, it says, they did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and wonders that he had shown them. How many people today are really mindful of all of the works that God has done for mankind down through the centuries? Not only for the things he did for ancient Israel, which most people know little or nothing about. The average person on the street would know almost nothing about 
any of the works that are recorded in Scripture that God did for Israel and would not even recognize many of the things that he has done for others down through history, even up to our own age, as things that were actually done by God. In verse 17, it goes on to say, They sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. So they went from one sin to another, and they kept getting in more and more deeply into the habit of sin. Verse 22 says, They did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Verse 36, Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. And then in verse 40, it says, How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Then in verse 56, it says, They tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. They began to practice outright idolatry, the worship of false gods openly, as well as other sins. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. So God came to the point where he abhorred Israel, where he, had, he abhorred Israel because of their persistent disregard for him and sinfulness and for their rebellion and for their unfaithfulness and idolatry, their spiritual adultery. When God's word does not abide in us and we don't reverence God, we begin listening to the wrong counsel, as did Adam and Eve. And often we may even seek out wrong counsel, as Israel did, as we read in Isaiah 30, beginning with verse 1. Isaiah 30 and verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Yes, they were taking counsel, but they weren't taking advice from God. They weren't listening to God. They were listening to the counsel of others apart from God and opposed to God. In verse 12 of Isaiah 30, it goes on to say, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments of shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. In other words, it'll be broken so completely that there will be nothing useful left of it. In verse 11, it says, For the Lord thus uh, this is from Isaiah 8, verse 11. Isaiah 8, verse 11. For the Lord 
It spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. God told Isaiah, you don't, you don't walk the way the rest of this nation is walking. You don't live like they're living. You don't share their worldview or their attitude toward life and toward me. He said in verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And then verse 16 of Isaiah 8, we read, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. It got so bad in Israel that God said he was hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Then in verse 19, we read, When they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? So they were going to demons, to mediums who had familiar spirits, in other words, were demon-influenced, and they were praying to the dead, as people often do today, continuing that abomination. That's who, were they, that's who they were looking to for advice. But it says in verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry, that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they shall be driven into darkness. That's what happens when you fail to reverence God and seek counsel from God and his word, and you turn instead to demons and pray to the dead instead of to God and pray to dumb idols and look to men to save you. On the other hand, seeking God, seeking to obey God's word can keep you from sin. In Psalm 119, verse 9, Psalm, Psalm 119, verse 9, it says, How can a young man cleanse his way? How can you cleanse your way? In other words, how can you get rid of sin? How can you overcome sin and temptation? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Notice it says, with, your, with my whole heart I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So if we want to overcome sin, we look to God. We develop a relationship with God. We seek God diligently. And we hide God's word in our hearts. In other words, we treasure it. And we allow God's word to guide us and motivate us and influence us. We're also told if we want to avoid temptation to watch and pray. 
Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was to be taken away to be crucified, as we read in Matthew 26 and verse 41, he said to them, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch means to keep awake, to be vigilant. And it does not just apply to keeping up with the news. That may be one application of it, but it's a lot more broad than just keeping up with what's going on in the world and uh, thinking about prophecy. It could include that, certainly. It does include that. But it means to be spiritually aware. It means to be alert to temptation and to the wiles of the devil. As we read in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant. In other words, watch. Stay awake. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So we must be watchful, we must be sober, we must be vigilant. We must be spiritually aware, alert to temptation, alert to how Satan may be attempting to subvert and undermine us. And if we are not being watchful and constant in prayer, that is, spending a substantial amount of time in prayer every day, we are likely to fall into temptation. In Ephesians 6, verse 17, Ephesians 6, verse 17, Paul said, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Notice what Paul said. He said praying always. That doesn't mean you pray 24 hours a day every day, but it means that you pray consistently. You pray daily. You, you spend a, a good deal of time in prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. How much time should we spend in prayer? The Bible doesn't tell us, give us a precise amount of time. Paul said always, but that is a, a figure of speech that he was using, meaning spend a good deal of time in prayer. Pray, pray daily, pray several times a day. We read in Psalm 55, verse 17, where David wrote, Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. So here David talks about praying evening and morning and at noon. In the temple service, there was a morning and an evening service every day. And the people that were near where the sanctuary was would often go to the temple at certain times of day to pray twice a day. 
Uh, you don't have to go to you know, a, a specific place to pray necessarily. But we ought to be praying. And by the way, the, the services there included prayer, the morning and evening services in the temple. But the indication is we ought to be praying at least twice a day and probably at least three times a day. Daniel 6 and verse 10, Daniel was greatly beloved by God, a man who was faithful to God and to whom God revealed a great deal of spiritual wisdom and knowledge as well as prophecy. And in verse 10 of Daniel 6, where Daniel was being condemned, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before God as his custom, as was his custom since early days. So Daniel's habit every day was to pray three times a day. Five minutes of perfunctory prayer a day isn't going to accomplish much in terms of keeping sin out of your life. If you're praying, giving attention to prayer consistently and praying to the true God and praying with spiritual, true spiritual awareness and understanding, then prayer can do a great deal to help you overcome temptation. So as you think about sin, putting out sin and keeping sin out of your life, remember to worship God, to seek God, to study God's word, to treasure it, to pray, to partake of the spirit of God. God's nature is incompatible with sin. And when God is abiding in you fully and powerfully through his spirit, sin can't.